Welcome to Immigration Nerds. In late March, Pike County Detention Center detainee Aldo Camacho Lopez began feeling sick and displayed fever-like symptoms. However, he did not receive any medical care. On April 2nd, after still not receiving any care or practicing social distancing procedures, he tested positive for COVID-19. Not until three days later, after contracting pneumonia, was he then treated at a hospital. During 2020, stories of the lack of appropriate and swift care at detention centers during COVID-19 is beginning to see a trend. Aldo's attorney, Christopher Cazaza, tells the story of one of those cases and brings better context to what is happening on a national level. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. Could you start with when did you first have this case come to your desk? Yeah. Um, so actually, I received a phone call in the evening of April 2nd from Mr. Camacho Lopez's fiance. She called me. She explained to me that her fiance was detained at Pike County Correctional Facility in immigration custody and that he had just as of that day tested positive for mm. COVID-19. Mm. And what date um, was that? When that was April, that was Thursday, April second, twenty twenty. Okay. Cool. Um, mm. I had not represented him previously. He had received my number from another inmate at Pike County. Mm. Um, so she called me and she told me he had tested positive. I kind of went over the background of his case a little bit, and I I wasn't sure if there was anything that I could do. Mm. Um, I could hear through the phone that he was having a lot of trouble breathing and that he was in mm. a lot of distress. He asked if I could help in any way. And the only thing that I thought is he needed to get to a hospital. So mm. I told him, well, why don't you tell the COs or somebody the way you're feeling and the fact that you're having trouble breathing? He explained that his chest felt like it was on fire um, or his lungs felt like it was on fire. His chest was in a lot of pain. His bones were aching. And I could, again, I could hear that he was really struggling to breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, I told him to tell the CEOs, tell someone at the staff. He said that he did. And they told, they just keep telling him he'd be fine. I hmm. said, well, what did the doctor say? And he said, well, I haven't seen a doctor. And I said, what, what type of medical treatment are you receiving? And he says, I'm not receiving any medical treatment. I said, well, what are they doing for you? And he said, they come around once in the morning, they give me a little bit of Gatorade and they give me a pill. I don't know what the pill is. And they tell me that I'll be okay. I asked him if he'd been in contact with anybody else. And he, he told me he was in a cell with somebody else wow. 23 hours a day and that wow. that person had not been tested for COVID. Prior to April 2nd, prior to testing positive, he was in a cell with three other individuals and that he would be released into general population for about an hour a day. He explained to me that he had started exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 around March 25th, that he had been in contact with 40 plus inmates and multiple staff at Pike County between March 25th and April 2nd when he tested positive. Um, so it really seemed like a very dire situation. And I decided during that phone call 
to take on his case pro bono and try and file a federal lawsuit uh, or habeas petition and a temporary restraining order to get him medical treatment immediately. And did he eventually receive that medical treatment? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny you should ask. I dropped everything that I was doing. I started work on the habeas and the TRO, and I filed the habeas and the TRO on April 3rd, the next day, the day after that phone call. I filed it in the late afternoon. The chief judge in the Middle District of Pennsylvania was great about it. He took it as serious as I would have hoped. Um, and he required that the government respond to my brief by Saturday afternoon, which they did. And then he required that I respond to their reply by Sunday. So I submitted my response on Sunday. They, a hearing on the temporary restraining order was scheduled for Monday the 6th. And in the evening of Sunday, April 5th, after I had submitted my brief, Mr. Camacho Lopez was taken by ambulance to a hospital mm. due to his trouble breathing. When he was taken to the emergency room, they diagnosed him with double pneumonia and wow. they admitted him to the hospital uh, for long-term care uh, due to the COVID-19 and the double pneumonia. What he was exhibiting symptoms for a couple of weeks um, and got to the point where he had to be hospitalized. Right. That's when they gave the care. Correct. So I'm not a doctor, obviously. Sure. Um, it was, I, I filed this thing in less than 24 hours. I did make a couple attempts to get a doctor's input. Um, but as you can imagine, most of the doctors who knew or know anything about COVID-19 in early April, we're at the front lines of the COVID response. And so I, it was very, very difficult to get an expert in that short of time. So what I had to do in that short period of time was pour over the CDC guidelines, uh, the CDC publications regarding COVID. And what I found was the symptoms that he was exhibiting, the chest pain, the burning of the lungs, the trouble breathing, were what they call emergency warning signs. Um, he was 31 years old. He actually turned 31 on April 2nd, the day he no, was COVID. Young, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, if you look at the CDC statistics, about 20% of people in that age range end up uh, hospitalized due to COVID. Mm. So right. I, one fifth is a fifth, you know, a, a fifth of people being hospitalized is kind of a significant number. Right. Um, it's certainly not, he's not in the age range. I don't know if there's any age range, but he's not in the age range where you could just dismiss the idea that he would be hospitalized due to this. You can't just say, oh, he's young. He'll be fine. He'll pull through. Um, so I was able to do a, a, detailed statement from him and get him to explain all of the symptoms. And they really did match the, the emergency warning signs that one, sh the CDC would advise you to go to the hospital immediately. If you're, you know, if you have these symptoms, um, he hadn't even seen a doctor. 
Mm. <laughs> and wow. so my my habeas it wasn't to get him released and back home and all those things. It was to get him to a hospital. I, I had to right. sue. Right. Exactly. I had to sue the government to get him proper care, to get him to actually see a doctor. You know, I wasn't asking for much uh, for it's someone in this situation. So, um, so um, just to ask a question, is this particular to Philadelphia detention center? Do they have a, nationwide protocol during this coronavirus time when they see a detainee exhibiting some symptoms, is there a procedure or a policy of how to take care of them? Something that the staff can follow? It's interesting. That's a, that's a great question. There's a couple things that I want to touch on. The first is that the CDC um, did provide guidance um, on how jails, federal jails and detention centers should handle the outbreak. Um, I believe that, that those guidelines were provided in response to the fact that there were two doctors who were experts for the Department of Homeland Security who wrote a detailed letter to Congress explaining that the majority, if not all, of immigration detainees should be released during this. And they described detention centers as a tinderbox for an outbreak of COVID-19. And they explained how, how an outbreak of COVID-19 in a detention center would not only cause rapid spread of COVID-19 within the mm. detention center, but will also severely handicapped the public health system sure. due to the influx of Patients, serious yeah. cases. Um, the detention centers, I, I will say they are trying to follow those guidelines to the best of their ability, but they're severely limited in what they're able to do. For instance, Pike County Detention Center was putting people in isolation, but the isolation was four people in a cell. And then they were allowing them to get out of their cell for 30 minutes a day. So they're essentially putting four people, everybody was locked down, four people per cell. Um, and if somebody started exhibiting symptoms, I think they would reduce that to two people. Um, but social distancing is impossible when you're in a no. prison. Um, they were handing out masks, masks okay. and gloves to everybody, um, but supplies were limited. I know that soap was limited. In most cases in these detention centers, you have to purchase your soap. They do provide you a small ration, but that was running out. Do they, do they take any um, special consideration for detainees that are quote unquote high risk, whether of older age or they already have pre-existing conditions? Right. So they, they did start releasing some detainees. I had two clients who were released. They were, uh, they both had diabetes. They were both over the age of 50. Um, neither of them had any criminal record. Um, and so they released them. I don't know if that was in response to other habeas petitions that were being filed. The ACLU did a wonderful job. They started uh, filing mass habeases with 10, 20 um, plaintiffs seeking release due to advanced conditions. But I, what I really struggle with is that ICE 
and and the Department of Homeland Security was really weighing heavily on the criminal backgrounds or the uh, immigration backgrounds of who they were deciding to release. And when you have an individual who's over a certain age, um, who may have a pre-existing condition, and you're deciding to keep him in a place like Pike County where COVID-19 is spreading. Two people actually died in in Pike County uh, from COVID. Uh, And you're deciding that you're going to keep him detained because he got a DUI two years ago um, and you think he's a danger. I I have a serious problem with that. Um, And in fact, in response to Mr. Camacho Lopez's habeas, the government provided an affidavit from an ICE officer explaining Mr. Camacho Lopez's uh, criminal and immigration background. Hmm. I, I wasn't asking him to be released to the street. I wanted him to go to a hospital. I don't. It, it was completely irrelevant to the proceedings unless they feel that a person with a criminal history has less of a right to medical care. What What are the next steps in terms of this specific case? Well, so Mr. Camacho Lopez oh, went to the hospital. Um, we had the hearing on Monday, um, and my habeas was mooted to an extent um, because I was asking that he get, you know, medical care, and now he was in medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in the hospital for about a week and being treated, and was returned to Pike County thereafter. Okay, has, um, has he largely recovered? He he did. Yep. Okay. He recovered from it. Thankful for the medical care he received. He did recover from it. Uh, he went back to Pike County and he will be removed from the United States in the near future. Um, his immigration history and criminal history is such that he will not have any chance at lawful status in the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. What does this say for the larger picture and the, the bigger picture with ICE and their practices for making sure that the detainees that are there and staff, honestly, mm-hmm. are properly taken care of. And when there are signs that there can be swift action, it's, it doesn't sound like it's something concrete in place. You mentioned that they follow the CDC guidelines, but that's more of exactly what it is, guidelines, not <laughs> not strict right. rules. And, and they try and follow the guidelines right. to their best of their right. ability. But mm-hmm. what, what needs to happen is that they mm-hmm. need to be more flexible and they need to understand that you know, this is the severity of this, that it's an Mm -hmm. unprecedented pandemic and that these immigrants are human beings. Their detainees are human beings and they deserve basic human rights, including the right to protect themselves from these things. Um, You know, everybody's got a job to do and their job is to remove these individuals, um, but they have the resources of the federal government to keep track of people, to make sure that these individuals don't abscond, to make sure that they don't harm the public if that's their concern. What they really need to do is they need to view these individuals as human beings and treat them like human beings. And, And so far, I don't believe that they're doing that. I hate to throw a blanket statement over an entire agency. Sure. Um, but 
from what we're seeing, they're not treating them properly. Hmm. Um, I know that some measures have been taken with overcrowded centers that mm-hmm. would transfer detainees right. to to other centers less occupied. They would be in buses, uh, not respecting the the six feet social distancing guidelines. So they would be cooped in together right. um, with uh, limited equipment or or mask. So I'm not sure how much <laughs> that well, has helped. I know for a fact that um, a couple things. One is that Pike County has one of the worst records as far as medical care in the country when it comes to ICE detention centers. It did before COVID-19, and that's really been magnified uh, with the pandemic. Um, I know that there were an influx and a spike in the number of habeas petitions filed by the ACLU as well as private attorneys like myself. In mid-April, they took uh, approximately 20, it could have been more, detainees, and they flew them to a detention center in Texas, one of the newer, larger detention centers in Texas. I know that when they sent those individuals to that detention center, which houses over 900 individuals, there were no cases of COVID-19 at that Texas detention center. Okay. There were multiple cases at Pike County. And I do know for a fact that some of those Pike County individuals who were transferred there tested positive for COVID-19 after arriving in Texas. So yes, they have been transferring individuals, but they have been taking fire from one tinderbox and putting it in another. It makes absolutely no sense. It, it, It really does not make any sense. Wow. I, I think it really comes back to what you were saying, treating uh, these people with the dignity and humanity that they deserve, right? Um, if you're showing any signs or that you need medical treatment, that that needs to be taken care of right when that happens. And, you know, Gatorade and uh, some mystery pill. Well, the pill, the pill I, I should have mentioned, the pill ended up being a multivitamin. Um, so (laughs) someone who's exhibiting, um, extremely serious emergency warning signs of COVID-19 and nothing in the CDC guidelines about giving them a single multivitamin and a sugary sports drink. Um, my, my wife and I actually had some Gatorade in the fridge. Uh, we don't normally, but we did. So when I heard that, I went up there and I looked at the ingredients and the, and the thing, and it it was 40% of a daily volume of sugar, sugar, a yeah. uh, daily serving yeah. of sugar. It's a lot of sugar. Um, that's, I mean, it's like giving him a can of Coke and a multivitamin and saying- That's going to knock it out. That's going to- Yeah, <laughs> that's going to treat COVID. Uh, that's going right. to cure your double pneumonia. Uh, so- Yeah, yeah. So so hopefully what we can hope for is that these detention centers raise the standard, right? Well, if they can't, if they're physically unable or they don't have the resources to have a doctor to isolate people in single cells. Right. Staff on hand, medical staff on hand. Medical staff on hand, trained medical staff. If they don't have the ability to isolate individuals, if they don't have the ability to protect their own staff, the only logical conclusion is you have to make adjustments to your population. You have to release some of these people. 
Mm. You can, you know, I understand that they have a job to do and they, some people, they really feel a, a very strong need to detain. And I'm not arguing that. Okay. Mm. But you have to make the adjustments. If you can't meet those guidelines, then you have to make the adjustments. Mm. And with that, uh, Chris, I appreciate you coming on. And I think it's one of those stories that doesn't get much press or notoriety, but this is what's happening across the country, right? And it's usually uh, the people who we don't think much of uh, that are receiving substandard treatment. We have to acknowledge this and shine a light on it. And I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm, I'm glad that Aldo is recovered and, and safe now, thanks to, to your work. Well, thank you for covering this. I think it's very important for the larger goal, which is to view and respect immigrants as human beings. And I think if this entire country just did that, just looked at immigrants as human beings, a lot of things would be different. So thank you. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.